Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 35, Numbers chapters 34 and 35. Well, last time we had just concluded Numbers 33. And this was a kind of Cliff Notes version if you would, of the route of the Exodus that enumerated 42 stations where events of significance took place during the Israelites' wilderness journey, a journey that was, at this point, just a few weeks from its conclusion. Now, we discussed how the Lord gave Moses some tough instructions about how they were to go about invading and taking Canaan. And they were to drive out the Lord said, all the inhabitants from every corner of the land. The only Canaanites that were allowed to remain were those who renounced whatever tribal affiliation they had and joined Israel. Okay? This meant that they also had to completely disavow their gods and rituals and obey the Torah. Now naturally, there weren't a whole lot of those that chose to do that. Right. Those who fought against Israel and refused to let go of their land and leave were to be killed. Moreover, the Lord told Moses that if Israel failed to do this, not only would the people who remained in that land be a constant thorn in the side of Israel, but that the Lord would deal with Israel in the same manner that he had intended on dealing with those pagans. Now, chapter 33 concluded with the instruction that the allotment of territory among the tribes of Israel should commence immediately and that it was to be done incorporating two methods, lots and proportionality. That is, lots would be cast to determine the general region of Canaan that each tribe would receive, but the size of each tribe's territory would be proportional to that tribe's population. Well, as long a road as it's been studying the book of Numbers, the book is rapidly coming to a close now. With some laws about the boundaries of the territory that the Lord is giving to Israel and some other laws about how the land's to be protected and governed. Now, starting in last week's study, chapter 33, and progressing to the end of the book of Numbers, the subject is all about the imminent possession of the promised land. And it's difficult, I think, for us in the 21st century to imagine and to internalize just what a momentous event the occupation of the land of Canaan by the Hebrews was. If we think of the grandest moments of the Bible, we would probably list the creation, the great flood, the parting of the Red Sea and the Exodus, and the advent of Jesus Christ, right at the top of that list. But without doubt, the realization of that now 600-year-old covenant of Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be given a land of their own to possess forever, that belongs on that list. And right near the top of it. You know, just as believers wait expectantly for the return of our Messiah Yeshua and the establishment of his kingdom, so did Israel await for their covenant-based 
land inheritance to be given to them by the Lord. And this was because from the time of Abraham up until this point in the Torah, the Hebrews had always been a people without a country. From the moment the Lord told Abraham to get up and leave his native land, which was Mesopotamia, way up here to the north, a great deal of it, by the by the way, being modern-day Iraq. He told him he was to disassociate himself from his country and his family, meaning to forsake them, to disavow them. Abraham and all those Hebrews who would come from his loins would for centuries be nothing but resident aliens, sojourners, wherever they lived. Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, even though they wandered around in various parts of Canaan, they lived there at the pleasure of those Canaanites who owned and controlled the territory. When they resided in Egypt, it was at the pleasure of the Pharaoh. Joseph, who became the grand vizier of all Egypt, he didn't consider Egypt his home. And so ordered that his mummified body be taken to the land of Canaan on that marvelous day when Israel left Egypt for a journey to a land that finally would be their own. Believers, in addition to all of this being true and real and actually happening, it's also a pattern and a picture of us and our condition. The Torah, with the central theme being the creation of Israel as a people and then a nation, is a pattern of what the body of believers would experience in a time future to Moses. A time when the Lord would create another covenant for the purpose of refining just who would be included and on what terms among those that set apart people for him. When Abraham accepted Yehovah as his God, knowing him at that time only as El Shaddai, God of the mountain, and leaving everything from the past behind, Abraham was presented a covenant by and with Yehovah, a promise written in concrete. By accepting the covenant, Abraham became locked into the blessings of that covenant. When we accept Yeshua, As our God and Savior, we leave the past behind as we accept the reality of the covenant as guaranteed by His blood. And by accepting this renewed covenant, we are locked into its many blessings. Yet after Abraham accepted the covenant, the primary provision being a guaranteed place to live forever that would be his own, a place where he and his descendants belonged, a permanent home. It would be a long time before that home was finally realized. In the meantime, his descendants would be but strangers in a foreign land. As is clear from that pattern, believers, even though we're already living under the terms of the new covenant, You know, we've not yet realized the end result. A permanent place to live 
a place where we actually belong. A place set up just for us. The kingdom of God. You know, I've been a believer almost all my life. But it's probably only been the past 10-15 years or so that I began to feel the effects of, of what I am. A stranger living in a foreign place. And I'm going to remain in that condition until the Lord decides it's time for me to go home. You know, truly, I had been quite comfortable in the world. I got along very well with the world. And I prospered in the world. Even though I was spiritually set apart from the world by God due to my acceptance of His Son. Yet the Lord has told us emphatically, we don't belong here. That in our new condition, we may be in this world, but we're not of it. See, Israel was in Egypt a long, long time. But they were never of Egypt. And as time wore on, they became more acutely aware that they were round pegs trying to occupy some square holes. And just as important though, the Egyptians became more acutely aware that these Hebrews weren't part of Egypt. They weren't part of them. They were odd. They were different. They didn't fit. They just served a useful purpose as slaves. Oh, the Egyptians enjoyed what these Hebrews brought to the game. But at the same time, the Egyptians Egyptians grew to hate them. But you know, there wasn't always hatred. At first, the Hebrews were welcomed. The Egyptians even learned from the Hebrews, adopted some of their ways. Egypt prospered. Slowly, however, decade after decade, the Hebrews' separateness and differentness began to irritate the Egyptians. In time, that irritation turned into bitterness. And finally, during the lifetime of Moses, that bitterness overflowed into violent hatred. And there was no choice for Israel's survival but to be taken out of Egypt and placed into the kingdom that the Lord had prepared for them. The older I get, the more I feel that. I hardly recognize my own country anymore. Some nights it's truly hard for me to go to sleep. Okay, thinking about it all and what kind of world my grandchildren are going to face. I know what is right and what is wrong because the Lord has taught me. But most of the world around me says there is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. It's simply cultural choices. I know that there is but one God, the God of the Bible, and His name is Yehovah because I personally know Him. But the world says that if there's a God... He goes by many names, including Buddha, Hindi, Allah, but to name a few. You know, I'm just not comfortable here anymore. I feel like a child who was adopted shortly after birth, and then one day I look around and I don't look anything like my parents or my brothers and sisters. And I long to know who I really am. 
I know I don't belong here. And the people around me who don't know Yeshua, you know what? They're not very comfortable with me either. And they're questioning whether I'm one of them. Whether I belong here with them. But, like Abraham, I too have been placed under a covenant. I have a promise in place. Of a place where things will finally operate the way they're supposed to. A place where the government will be upon the shoulders of our Messiah. A place where I belong. Like Israel, I've been redeemed. I don't belong to my cruel taskmaster anymore. I've begun my exodus. I've received God's word. I'm on a journey through the wilderness towards my final destination. But I'm still in kind of a holding pattern. I'm not there yet. We today sit precisely where Moses and Israel were at this point in the book of Numbers. The promise of God's covenant to us is right there before us. We can see it. We can almost smell it. And soon, very soon, we're going to be able to take hold of it. Yet this life we're living and our time we are wandering in the wilderness, this is not to be a time of idleness. Is it? Our job is to learn the ways of the Lord. To practice them. Because once we're at our destination, we're going to be living those ways more completely and eternally in the presence of Yeshua than we've ever imagined. So here in Numbers is the people of Israel can finally see their destination just, just off in the distance. And know it's only days, hours, before it's theirs. God gives them some instructions now about how they're supposed to live once they get there. Let's read some of those instructions in Numbers chapter 34. Numbers chapter 34, page 192 in the complete Jewish Bible. Adonai told Moshe to give this order to the people of Israel. When you enter the land of Canaan, it will become your land to pass on as an inheritance the land of Canaan as defined by these borders. Your southern portion will extend from the Sin Desert close to the border of Edom. The eastern terminus of your southern border is the end of the Dead Sea, and from there your border turns, and it goes south of the uh, Akrabim ascent and passes on to Tzin, and from there it goes on to Kadesh Barnea, on to Hetzar Adar, and on to Asmon. Then the border turns and goes from Asmon to the Wadi of Egypt and along to the sea. Your western border will be the Great Sea. Your northern border will be as follows. From the Great Sea, mark a line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, mark a line to the entrance of Hamat. The border goes out to Sitad. Then the border goes to Sifron and finally to Hatsar Enan. And this is your northern border. Now, for the eastern border, mark your line from Hatsar Enan to Shmam. And then the border goes on down to Shmam to Rivla. And from the east side to of uh, Ayin, then down until it hits the slope east of Lake Kinneret, that's the Galilee. 
And from there it goes down the Jordan River until it flows into the Dead Sea. These will be the borders of your land. Now Moses gave this order to the people of Israel. This is the land in which you will receive inheritances by lot, which Adonai has ordered to give to the nine tribes and the half tribe. The tribe of the descendants of Reuben have already received their land for inheritance according to their clans, and so have the descendants of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh. These two and one half tribes have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, eastward towards the sunrise. And Adonai said to Moses, these are the names of the men who will take possession of the land for you. Eleazar the Kohen and Yahashua the son of Nun and appoint one leader for each tribe to take possession of the land. And the names of these men are from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Yefune. From the tribe of the descendants of Shimon, Shmuel the son of Amahud. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad the son of Kislon. And from the tribe of the descendants of Dan, their leader, Buhi, the son of Yogli. And from the descendants of Joseph, from the tribe of the descendants of Manasseh, a leader, Haniel, the son of Ephod. And from the tribe of the descendants of Ephraim, a leader, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan. And from the tribe of the descendants of Yevulun, a leader, Elitzphan, the son of uh, Parnach. And from the tribe of the descendants of Yisachar, a leader, Paltiel, the son of Azan. And from the tribe of the descendants of Asher, a leader, Achihud, the son of Shlomi. And from the tribe of the descendants of Naphtali, a leader, Padahel, the son of Amahud. These are the ones who, whom Adonai ordered to divide the inheritance among the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. The first 12 verses are simply the boundaries of the promised land. And many of the points given today are not known, but many of them are. Now, certainly the easternmost part, the Jordan River, um, which flows right up along this way here, okay, and, and the westernmost part, the, the, the sea, the great sea, the Mediterranean out here, are pretty easy to identify. Even the northern part is fairly certain, but the southern boundary is a little less so. Now, look at this map because it's by far an easier way to understand these boundaries. Now, there are Egyptian records from approximately this same period, roughly the 14th century B.C., that are virtually identical in describing the boundaries of the land of Canaan, okay, as we read here in Numbers. Which means that we can know that what we read in the Bible is correct. There were recognized boundaries in those days of the land of Canaan, and that's what we read here in Numbers 34. See, Jehovah did not redefine the, band, the boundaries of Canaan, he didn't add to it, he didn't subtract from it. When he said you're getting the land of Canaan, that's what he meant. But as for the southern boundary, as identified in verse 5 as the Nahla Mishraim, often translated in 
semi-English as the Wadi of Egypt. This is probably the greatest of the controversies. I do not buy for a minute that this southern boundary is the Nile River. There is no way. Okay, first, nowhere do we find the term Nahla Mishraim ever used to denote the Nile. Second, the term Nahla more just means a water course. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean a desert wadi that is a dry riverbed except when a thunderstorm suddenly fills it because it can also refer to a brook or a small stream that sometimes is a trickle seasonally a stream occasionally it's a temporary torrent that in no way is a term used to describe the Mississippi River sized Nile River Okay. third is these Egyptian records are so explicit and nearly identical to the record here in Numbers about what was considered the boundaries of Canaan in that time. If one took the Nahla Mishraim to mean the Nile, that would assert that Canaan at one time included the entire Sinai Peninsula extended well onto the African continent, taking in much of the land that's always been ascribed to uh, Egypt. Okay. Fourth, as these Egyptian records are from about the same period as the Exodus, had Canaan included, at that time, the Sinai Peninsula or even the eastern bank of the Nile, if the Nile was that southern boundary, then that means that the Sinai Peninsula was part of the Promised Land. So it would have been a pretty short journey, maybe a couple of days out of Egypt into Canaan and the journey would have been over practically before it started. Okay, So you can see how none of this makes a lot of sense. Now, there are more, more serious and reasonable disagreements over exactly where that Nahla Mishraim is but it could not have extended deep into the Sinai which was always known as Egyptian territory. Now, the next thing that people can get confused over when discussing the boundary of the promised land is that when one looks at this in numbers and then goes on to read Ezekiel, looks a little different. The Ezekiel 47 land division is somewhat different than what we just read in numbers. But nowhere is it as an extreme a difference as has been regularly taught and frankly I believed at one time. Okay, let's, let's take a look at that. It's kind of interesting. Open your Bibles to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. And we're going to read starting at verse 13. Go to the end of Ezekiel 47, jump right into 48, and read down to verse 14. Okay, that's 704 if you're in the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start at verse 13. Adonai Elohim says, These are the borders of the land you are to distribute for inheritance by the twelve tribes of Israel with Joseph receiving two portions. 
For inheritance you will each have equal shares. I swore to your ancestors that I would give them this land. Now it falls to you to inherit it. The borders of the land will be as follows. On the north from the Great Sea through uh, Hetlon to the entrance of Sadad, Hamath, uh, Berotah, Sibraim, which is the border between, uh, between the border of Damasek, uh, in other words, Damascus, right, and the border of Hamath, Hatzer, Hatichon, which is at the border of Havron, and the border from the sea will be Hatzer, Enon, at the border of uh, Damascus. While on the north, northward is the border of Hamat. This is the north side. And on the east side, measure between uh, Havron and Damascus, Gilead and the land of Israel by the Jordan, from the border to the east sea, this is the east side. And on the side of Negev towards the south, it will be from Tamar, as far as the waters of uh, Meravot Kadesh, then to the Wadi of Egypt, and on to the Great Sea. This is the south side towards the Negev. The west side will be the Great Sea. As far as across from the entrance to Hamath, this is the west side. This is the territory you are to divide among the tribes of Israel. You are to divide it by lot as an inheritance both to you and to the foreigners living among you who gave birth to children living among you. For for you they are to be no different from among, among the native born among the people of Israel. There to have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. You are to give the foreigner an inheritance in the territory of the tribe with whom he is living, says Adonai Elohim. Now following is the list of tribes. This is Dan's territory. From the north end through Hetlon to the entrance of Hamath, Hatzar Anon at the border of Damascus, northward next to Hamath, and they will have their sides east and west. Asher's territory will run alongside the territory of Dan from east to west. Naphtali's territory will run along the territory of Asher from east to west. Manasseh's territory will run along the territory of Naphtali from east to west. Ephraim's territory will run along the territory of Manasseh from east to west. Reuben's territory will run alongside the territory of Ephraim from east to west. Judah's territory will run alongside the territory of Reuben from east to west. And alongside the territory of Judah from east to west, will be the offering you are to set aside. 25,000 cubits wide, which is 8 miles, and in length equal to distance between the east and west boundaries of one of the proportions, with the sanctuary in sight of it. The offering you are to set aside for Adonai is to be 8 miles long and 3 wide. This holy offering will be for the priests. It will be eight miles in length along its north and south side, three in width along the east and west sides. Adonai Sanctuary will be inside of it. The portion set aside as holy will be for the priests who are the descendants of Sidok that remained faithful to my commission and did not go astray when the people of Israel and the Levites went astray. It is to be an especially holy portion set apart for them and taken from the offering of the land next to the border of the Levites. And alongside the territory for the priests, the Levites are to have a portion eight miles long and three wide. Its total length will be eight and width three. They may not sell, exchange, or alienate any of this choice land because it's holy for Adonai. Okay. Now if you look at this map, You'll see that the territorial allotment is a little bit different. Um, It's somewhat bigger, and the Levites are also given territory. 
but they're not given any, of course, in the numbers allotment. But what you see here is that the territories are kind of stacked, all right, like a totem pole, all right. And they, of course, they all start on the uh, west coast, which is the which is the um, uh, which is the sea, all right, Mediterranean Sea, and then they extend east. But this is entirely different, really than what was given in numbers. So what gives here? Well, we discussed in some earlier lessons about how there are some interesting transformations at a certain point in Ezekiel, not the least of which is the reinstitution of sacrificial worship in the temple, in a rebuilt temple, the third temple but also a change in the ritual procedures that seem to reduce the role and importance of the priesthood to kind of one of religious MCs, if you would, over commemorative rather than effectual ceremonies. In other words, just like we'd celebrate Passover or Resurrection Day or even Communion, those observances are not some type of a ritual that's meant to affect some sort of ordained response back from God. We don't have our sins forgiven as a result of those ceremonies. We don't get into better standing with God. We aren't purified, etc. These are standard Christian and Messianic Jewish ceremonies that are simply joyful commemorations of gratitude to our Lord in remembrance of the great things He's done. So it's going to be in Ezekiel. But at a time when even more works of Messiah, Yeshua, will have been accomplished than what we have up to this point in our history. It's my position that the reason for the differences between these visions that we read of in Ezekiel versus what we just read in Torah and Numbers is that Ezekiel is speaking of the millennial kingdom period, also called the thousand-year reign of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ, that immediately follows the Armageddon event. As he will be literally and physically dwelling in and ruling from Jerusalem. And for a period of time, evil and rebellion will not exist on planet Earth. There is much that will necessarily be different as a result of that. For one thing, the number of believers who will be clamoring to live in and around Jesus the King, even though where we're going to be, we'll be able to choose probably anywhere we want to live on this planet, it's going to be far larger than the territorial allotment of numbers it would ever be able to accommodate. I can tell you that when that day comes, I'm going over there. That's going to become my home. So, we see this enormous amount of land being set aside for this purpose in Ezekiel. But, the main thing that happens in the Ezekiel description of the kingdom land as opposed 
to the Moses description is that the land on the east side of the Jordan, more or less the land that Moses promised to Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh to settle in, that becomes included in the definition now for the first time of the promised land. You see that change? In any case, one negative to all this is that Israel in its entire history has never controlled or inhabited all of the territory God gave the gave to them in numbers, let alone what's also described in Ezekiel. But it is key to grasp that whether they ever occupied it or not, the Lord still reserved it exclusively for Israel. Now, what else is so interesting and relevant to us in 2009 is that the promised land boundaries of Numbers 34 include virtually all of present-day Syria and Lebanon. They don't like that too much. I mean, is it any wonder that Syria and Lebanon are in constant war, sometimes cold, sometimes hot, with Israel? The government of the reborn nation of Israel has never laid claim to Syria or Lebanon. But all parties are well aware about what the Torah says about who owns that land. Muslims know better than most Christians and Jews what the Torah says about who owns that land, which is why they are willing to fight to the death over it as Satan's proxies. More important, though, is that both Yehovah and Satan knows the score. The people of Syria and Lebanon are living on land promised to Abraham and his Israelite descendants. The fact that earthly governments and institutions, even a major portion of the church, denies this doesn't mean anything in heaven. Okay. Yet can also cannot be denied, be denied that the land is described to Moses and then later to Ezekiel is a little different than what's described to uh, Abraham. Look at this map. Okay. The thing to understand about what was given to Abraham is that it's far more general in nature than what was given to Moses. Plus, since tribes moved and nations rose up and empires came and went, boundaries changed. People groups grew or shrank or disappeared altogether. And there's been a lot of change in place names and tribal locations by the time of Moses... All right, and then later on, yet, in Ezekiel. Well, beginning in verse 13, therefore, we get a summation of some facts. For instance, the promised land is to be divided among, essentially, ten tribes. Not the twelve that was originally set down. Actually, it was nine tribes plus the half-tribe of Manasseh who were to get portions. The reason, of course, is that the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh chose to stay outside of the promised land, outside of Canaan. So they gave up rights to live within Canaan. Well, this chapter concludes with a long 
listing of the tribes of Israel and who at the moment in history was the prince, the chieftain all right, of each of the tribes. Therefore, these ten men that are listed would be given the territorial allotment for the tribe they controlled and then it was up to them to subdivide their portion among the various clans and families within their tribe as they saw fit. Let's move on to chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35. In the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, Adonai said to Moses, Order the people of Israel to give to the Levites cities to live in from the heritage they will possess. And you are also to give the Levites some of the open land surrounding the cities. They are to have the cities to live in while their open land will be for their livestock, for growing crops, for all their animals. The open land around the cities you give to the Levites is to commence at a line drawn around the city wall, 1,500 feet outside it, and it's to extend outward from there. Measure 3,000 feet outward from the city wall to the east, south, west, and north with the city at the center. The space between the 1,500-foot line and the 3,000-foot line will be their open land around the cities. The cities you give to the Levites are to be the six cities of refuge to which you permit the person who kills someone to flee to, plus an additional 42 cities. Thus, you will give the Levites 48 cities with their surrounding open land. Now, as to the cities you will give from those the people of, the, of Israel possess, from the many that you will take, um, and from the few you will take, and each tribe will contribute from its cities to the Levites in accordance with the size of its inheritance. And Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel... When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you're to designate for yourselves cities that will be cities of refuge for you, to which anyone who kills someone by mistake can flee. These cities are to be a refuge for you from the dead person's next of kin, who might otherwise avenge his kinsman's death by slaying the killer prior to his standing trial before the community. Now, in regard to the cities you are to give. There are to be six cities of refuge for you. You're to give three cities east of the Jordan, three cities in the land of Canaan. They will be cities of refuge. And these six cities will serve as a refuge for the people of Israel as well as for the foreigner and the resident alien with them. So that anyone who kills someone by mistake may flee there. However, If he hits him with an iron implement that causes his death, he's a murderer. A murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a stone in his hand that's big enough to kill somebody, and he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer must be put to death. Or if he hits him with a wood utensil in his hand capable of killing someone, and he dies, he's a murderer. Murderer must be put to death. The next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death himself. Upon meeting him, he's to put him to death. Likewise, if he shoves him out of hatred or intentionally throws something at him that causes his death, or out of hostility, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, then the one who struck him must be put to death. He is a murderer. And the next of kin avenger is to put the murderer to death upon meeting him. 
But suppose he shoves him suddenly, but without hostility, or he throws something at him unintentionally, or without seeing him. Being his enemy or seeking to harm him, he throws a stone big enough to cause death and then the person dies. Then the community is to judge between the one who struck him and the next of kin avenger in accordance with these rules. And the community is to save the killer from the next of kin avenger. The community is to return him to the city of refuge to which he fled. He's to live there until the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, who was anointed with the holy oil, dies. But if the killer ever goes beyond the limits of the city of refuge he fled to, and the next of kin avenger finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the avenger kills the killer, he will not be guilty of that man's blood, because he must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the killer may return to the land he owns. These things shall constitute your standard for judgment throughout all your generations, wherever you live. And if anyone kills someone, the murderer is to be put to death upon the testimony of witnesses. But the testimony of only one witness will not suffice to cause a person to be put to death. Also, you are not to accept a ransom in lieu of the life of a murderer condemned to death. Rather, he must be put to death. Likewise, you are not to accept for someone who has fled to his city of refuge a ransom that would allow him to return to his land before the death of the priest. In this way you will not defile the land in which you are living, for blood defiles the land. And in this land no atonement can be made for the blood shed in it, except the blood of him who shed it. No, you are not to defile the land in which you live in and in which I live. For I Adonai live among the people of Israel. Here the matter of living accommodations for the tribe of Levi is taken up beginning with the reminder that Moses was allotting the land and Israel was on the eastern edge of the Jordan River in the former land of Moab when this land allotment took place. And in verse 2, we see that as there were to be 48 cities set aside for the Levites, each tribe was to decide which cities they would give to the Levites as the Levites' permanent holding. In addition to the city proper, there was an amount of land contingent to each or rather uh, um, contiguous to each city to be used as pasture land for the Levites' animals. Now let's not be naive about what the Levites were given. These were not all walled or substantial cities. They were, generally speaking, not cities that the Israelites would build from scratch for them. Rather, these 48 cities would come from among the hundreds, if not thousands, of small villages and towns that the Israelite army would capture from the various Canaanite tribes during the conquest. Most of these so-called cities would consist of a handful of buildings. Now, let's also understand that like the Jubilee year, an essential part of the laws concerning the prohibition against permanently transferring land 
to someone other than the original owner. Okay. A celebration that, re, that records indicate never even happened one time. Okay. The Levites also never got their full complement of 48 cities. Okay. Oh, they may have been assigned the 48 cities, but it was critical to the ability of the Levites to inhabit these cities that each tribe would consistently care for the Levites who were to live in the assigned Levitical cities in their territory. And in most cases, it simply never happened. The book of Joshua speaks of several of these Levite cities by name, but only the larger ones. I have no doubt that some tribes chose to give the Levites practically unlivable and burnt out villages to inhabit. Ones that just didn't have much value to the tribe. So the Levites just never moved in. And instead kind of concentrated themselves in the more substantial cities they had been given, especially the few that might have had walls. After all, they, like all the other Israelites, had to protect themselves from the never-ending series of attacks, from marauding bands of bandits and occasionally the armies of kings intent on expanding their territory. See, the foreign tribes really didn't make a lot of distinction between Israel and the Levites and the priests. I mean, all of them were fair game. Now, verse 6 begins to speak of the famous cities of refuge. And there are to be a total of six of them. Now, interestingly, three of them were to be on the east side of the Jordan for the two and a half tribes that lived over there. And the other three on the west side of the Jordan for the nine and a half tribes that lived in the promised land. And we're told that just as part of the formula for deciding the territory each tribe would receive was going to be based on that tribe's relative size, so it would be that the size of the cities given to the Levites would be based on the amount of territory each tribe received. A tribe had a large amount of territory, then the cities given to the Levites were to be larger. Well, since that was the case, a rather ingenious method of deciding how much pasture land was to go along with each of the 48 cities was ordained. It was that the longitudinal measurement of a thousand cubits, about 500 yards, was to be in addition to the length of the town itself. So the bigger the town, the more was added to that thousand cubits of pasture land afforded each of the Levitical cities. Now the six cities of refuge, and these were six of the 48, not in, not in addition to the 48, were central to God's justice system. But even more, the laws concerning them dealt with this foundational theological principle. God is so holy, he cannot possibly be present on land that has been defiled by a murderer. When we think back to Leviticus, we see how key blood is to all of God's laws, to his justice system. Yet we are also shown that while blood 
is the only efficacious means of expiating sins, that is, only blood can bring atonement. Conversely, the improper spilling of blood is an abomination to the Lord. So it defiles. One of the clearest examples of this is the, is the matter of menstrual blood, which is a defiling thing for which there must be a purification. Yet the blood of a properly sacrificed animal could atone for all but a few of the most egregious, or as the Bible calls them, high-handed sins. Here, the issue is the killing of a human being. And whether or not this killing is murder or manslaughter. So these verses define what murder is. As opposed to what manslaughter is. And what the role of the cities of refuge are to be in each case. And next week we'll examine this and the role of the blood avenger. And next week, we will also finish the study of the book of Numbers. Okay? See you next time.